0: You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblin from Nashville Fertility Center, and today I'm joined by my fascinating and funny co host and friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Carrie Beniat from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hey. Hey. So what have you guys been up to lately? It's been a little while since we've recorded,
1: so we've not gotten to catch up with each other. It has. We just watched the third Harry Potter movie the other night, and I spent a large chunk of the time covering small eyes with my hands for the scary parts.
0: <laughs> I remember watching those as an adult, covering my eyes in the scary parts. Not my favorite kind of movie. Well, actually it was good, but I didn't like the scary parts. Turns out the Dementors are really frightening. If They're you pretty are small
2: creepy. Yeah. yeah. I'm hoping that this summer we're flying through London. And so I'm hoping we can go do like the little Harry Potter tour thing. Oh, that'd be
0: cool. That sounds very fun. So
2: I was just telling Carrie, I watched an old movie the other
0: night, Bridget Jones Diary. And it was so cool. I, I just remembered that I left the movie with a happy feeling, and I, but I didn't really remember a lot of the details because it's been so long ago since I watched it. But it is
1: hilarious. I laughed and I laughed. Bridget is very funny. That was one of our college go-to movies. Like I lived with, there were four of us in our apartment all during college. And we would frequently turn on Bridget to get through, you know, Friday nights, Saturday nights, whenever, whenever we really have anything else to do. And we were just like sitting down with a bunch of popcorn, some candy and watching Bridget and her exploits. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> I love it. And it's such a great soundtrack.
0: Yeah, it is. It is. I think one of the funnier parts is when she went running out after him. If you guys remember, there was a scene where it was snowing and she had mm-hmm. seen something written down in her diary that was really mean things about him that Colin Firth, the main guy that she liked. And so she saw him leaving and she just grabbed a sweater and she had like her underwear on. It was leopard print underwear. (laughs) And she went running down the street. Yeah. And that was, you know, then they like embraced. It was like such a, you know, happy moment at the
1: end. and. We should have the official underwear of Fertility Docs Uncensored, be leopard print.
0: Oh, I like that. I like that. Although
1: I will say, I didn't know we had official underwear here. Is that a new thing that I don't know about? Well, we do now. (laughs) You can choose the style, boy shorts, thong, granny panties, whatever. But I feel like the official underwear of FDU is going to be leopard print in honor of Bridget
2: Jones. It's going to be our first, um, not bling, but, uh, swag. Yeah. FDU leopard print undies with our little symbol on the butt cheek. Yeah.
0: I think it should have like a good, like a lucky charm on it somewhere. You know, like you take this underwear off and you get lucky. (laughs) 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 Let's be real. Nobody wants swag with a, you know, a mug that says fertility docs uncensored on it. But hey, underwear might be kind of like, you know, good karma or something, you know, for fertility.
2: It's like your pineapple socks.
1: Yeah, there you go. Yeah, or the pineapple earrings. I saw one of my surrogates came through with pineapple earrings, shirt and socks. And of course, she wasn't wearing pants or underwear because we were doing a transfer um so maybe underwear is not a good idea i don't know
0: maybe you guys can let us know on instagram or facebook or something if you have a preference for socks or underwear with our swag on it maybe you don't care for either but let us know one way or another (laughs) (laughs) that would be good all right we've got some questions today susan said we have about 40 questions i don't think we'll get to all of them but we're gonna as many as we can
2: All right. So our first one is, hello, I am 41 years old and have gone through three IVF cycles due to ectopic pregnancy and have one tube that has scar tissue. First two IVF cycles resulted in five eggs, but never made it to blast at the age of 35 and 36. Last retrieval had three eggs and doctors suggested they do implantation on day three, which obviously didn't work. And she was 40 at the time. Next step recommended is egg donor. My question is, should I go with an egg donor and do another IVF cycle just to make sure that it is egg quality my husband wants to just do egg donor but we have questions as to why the embryo did not implant genetic testing was normal for both of us sperm analysis was normal
0: so she had three cycles and one of them she did have a transfer that, was that the fresh day three transfer on the last one yeah and it didn't implant yeah correct at 40 and
1: now she's 41 so the thing that bothers me is that her first two retrievals were at thirty five thirty
2: six, and she only got five eggs in each of those retrievals. and that's that's not pure tubal factor at thirty five thirty six. there's There was an egg thing going on six years ago. I would agree.
1: I think when you're proceeding, like uh, some of it is going to be your comfort level. You know, I think you're more likely to hit success with an egg donor, but if you're not going to be comfortable doing an egg donor until you do one more cycle on your own, then you got your answer there because this is a heart decision. Yeah. Like you'll, you'll spend the time and the money doing one more cycle. The egg donations do not care about that because that's independent of your age. And so, I think you do what makes most sense to you guys as a couple and what will make you comfortable moving forward with egg donation. I think there are a lot of people who would say, screw it. I just want a baby. Let's move forward. And there are going to be other people who say, I just need to try one more time. And mentally, I am prepared to move forward with egg donation if this doesn't work.
2: But if what you're wanting to hear from us is, do we think that this is an egg issue and not just a tube issue? I think I can say... Yes, we think that this is an egg issue. You have eggs in tubes as an issue. So if from us, that's what you needed to hear. I think we all feel that way too.
0: Well, and the answer to why did the day three embryo not implant, again, it probably was just not a very good quality embryo. And there's millions of things that have to happen for an egg and a sperm to go together and to fertilize and to implant. And I get that question a lot like, well, why didn't it implant? Why didn't it grow? And the answer is, I don't know. I mean, there's millions of things that could have happened to make it, you know, not go successfully. So it's disappointing. But unfortunately, that's the question that everybody has that no one has an answer to. Yeah.
2: All right. Our next one is high fertility docs. I'm wondering about the impact of stress on infertility. My husband and I conceived our son now two and a half years old in the first month of trying. And now we're almost a year and a half into trying for our second child. I'm 31, he's 33, and all our tests are normal, so technically unexplained infertility, which is a frustrating diagnosis. We just had our first failed IUI and we're reflecting on the past month, two weeks of daycare closures for our son, and a week of my husband in bed battling a bad cold and me resenting him for that. Plus, we (laughs) recently moved cross-country and there's still a pandemic going on. Could the stress be impacting our fertility? What about colds and minor illnesses? Thanks.
0: What I always tell patients when I get that question is, you know, it's really tough to design a study to look at those kinds of things. I mean, I think stress impacts us in many ways that we don't understand, not just our reproductive system, but every other system in our body. We know that cortisol goes up. We know that that's a bad thing. We know if people are under really severe stress, they even stop making eggs. So we know that stress impacts our reproductive system, but it's really hard to know in this particular situation, you know, how it really impacts the egg and the sperm getting together. And it's hard to design a study like that because what impacts you and is stressful for you may not impact somebody else in the same way. So it's just hard to kind of figure that out. So I don't think anybody really knows the true answer to that.
2: And also realize when you're doing IUIs, you're probably doing something that has about a 15 to 20% chance of pregnancy per cycle. So there's so many things in that equation. Was the illness, was the stress, were those things contributing? It's possible, but I think there's reasonable data to say that, Severe acute stress probably has an impact, but what I call good old American stress, unfortunately, the studies really don't show that it has that much of an impact. Even it seems kind of counterintuitive and as corny as this sounds, I try to encourage my patients not to stress about stress because... There's enough for you to stress over all of us. We sit there and stress about our patients. And, you know, it's like you actually have people who are worrying about you all the time and take comfort in that and shift a little bit of that onto us so that you can be getting yourself in the best place possible. Agree with all of that. All right, so our next one. Hi, so thankful for your podcast. I'm going to be starting my IUI journey in March. I am going to be entering in a FAMEA, it might be FAMARA, um, IUI trial where they use a different catheter. The catheter goes right into the fallopian tubes. Oh, yeah sorry. So it is (laughs) the
0: Wow. Carrie seems excited about this question.
2: (laughs) I was wondering if you guys have seen or heard anything about this. We are a combo of female and male factor. So I'm leaning towards it's a great idea since it would be a shorter swim. What are your thoughts? As I'm not familiar with CNA, I'm going to let Carrie take this one. Carrie seems to know about this.
1: So this is
2: a new
1: catheter and um, our center was approached to do a study with it. And so the difference between this catheter and a standard IUI catheter is that a normal IUI catheter just goes in with the intent to put the sperm kind of at the top of the uterus, and then it swims in whatever direction it goes in to find the egg. And typically the hormonal influences of the side that releases the egg egg, help the sperm to favor that side because the fallopian tubes are helping to beat those cilia, those tiny little hairs to help the sperm go in the appropriate direction for whatever side is releasing an egg. So the difference with this catheter is that it has a direction to it. And so when you put the catheter in, it goes into one tube and then it blocks that tube so that you put the catheter into it you block it behind it so any sperm that you're putting in there is going to go into that side and it's not going to come back out into the uterus and so it gears it towards that side And you do it under ultrasound guidance is it like the catheter we're trying to do cannulation of the tubes that kind of catheter
0: or just sort of gets it over to that side and blocks it off from going to the other side. Like, Do you have to get it actually
1: in the tube physically when you're doing it? You have the- to get it at least in that cornua, And and there's a okay. tiny little balloon that blocks it, which is different than the cannulation catheters we use. Gotcha. So that's the thought behind it. Like, I don't know that there's any damage to doing it. I don't know what the data is going to show that it's more or less effective. I mean, the, it's really
2: a trial. Yeah,
1: it's, it's a trial. I mean, the trial seems well designed. Our center was willing to, to do it because we think it's a good design but it's a trial so we don't know I don't think it's going to do any harm I don't know if it's going to help but I don't think it's going to do any harm
0: the only concern I would have and I mean I guess I've looked at this is and maybe you don't generate enough pressure to do this but if the little egg is floating halfway through the tube and then you flush fluid that flushes it backwards what's the likelihood that it'll flush having you have a tubal
1: pregnancy or you get an ectopic because it goes too far in the direction
0: maybe the pressure is not high enough
1: that you can generate enough pressure to push the the egg that far back up yeah. I mean, I think the pressure is just the normal pressure that you put in for inserting sperm. Um, so it's not it's not going to be huge, but if it is going directly into the tube, I guess that could be a possibility. Hopefully that won't be the case. Yeah. So, you know, worth a try. I don't think there's any harm in doing the, the trial.
2: Yeah. All right. Our next one. I just went through my first failed cycle of IVF just for a bit of background. I'm 36, husband's 38, AMH 3.4, which gave her hope. I had laparoscopic surgery for stage one endo two years ago and a hysteroscopy to remove a few little polyps in my uterus just before I started the IVF cycle. My first stem resulted in eight eggs, seven mature, six fertilized with ICSI, and six began dividing. However, my doctor did say that they were not great quality. We did a day six transfer, and by that time, four eggs had degenerated. One had only made it to the Morula stage, and I had one blastocyst that the doc didn't seem too thrilled with. He went ahead and injected them both as I had imagined. Neither one stuck. My question is this, should I expect low egg quality in the future cycles as well, or can quality vary from cycle to cycle? I am also just curious how hopeful y'all are that this process of IVF will eventually work for me if I stick with it, with all things above considered. I feel pretty discouraged right now. Thank you so much for this podcast. I learned so much from it, and it gives me a lot of hope in the process.
0: My gut feeling, if I had a patient like this that I was talking to, I would look at her age, which is 36, and her AMH that's 3.4. 3.4 kind of means that she should have a pretty good number of eggs. In our practice, that would be like 15, maybe 15 to 20
1: eggs. And she only got like eight eggs. And so she's got endo. So like you usually see kind of a decreased yield with endo.
0: Yeah. So maybe, maybe a little bit of a decreased yield And, and that could affect sometimes the quality too. But I just, if it were me personally, I would ask her or kind of talk her into trying to do another cycle. Cause I just feel like, you know, we learn something from every cycle. And I think no matter what your cycle was, no matter what your STEM was, your doctor can probably look back at it and go, gosh, maybe we could do this to maybe see if we could get a few more eggs. And if we get a few more eggs, maybe we'll have better quality maybe they look back and say, you know, in reality, maybe we should have pushed her another day, of, you know, had her get another day of medicines. Sometimes if the eggs are a little bit on the immature side, they don't fertilize as well. They don't develop as well. If it were me personally, I would feel like that you could probably do better. And so I would really try and talk you into kind of maybe do another stem cycle. If this next stem cycle is very similar, then I would be less optimistic. But I think it'd be worth trying again, just because I think there's some things that probably can be
1: manipulated a little bit to you know, make you do better. I would agree with that. I think that oftentimes doing a second cycle, in addition to learning more, I think there's a priming effect of the medications. And so you would never do just uh, go through all the IVF meds just for the hell of it to prime. You would want to go through and try and get those eggs because a lot of time we do hit it on the first time. But, But I think many times we do a second cycle and get better results from it. Not all the time. Cycles are different from month to month. And those eggs can be affected by whatever's happened in the prior three months. So if you got really sick in the past couple of months, then I would say maybe give it a little bit more recovery time. But I think you you can potentially benefit by doing another cycle. You don't know unless you try. And I wouldn't give up and I wouldn't give in to the despair and the disappointment that comes in. I would say like, all right, we're, we're gonna do it again.
2: All right, let's do another one. I wanted to say how much I appreciate your podcast. I learned so much about infertility in a short period of time and couldn't be more grateful to you ladies. I was very prepared and ready when I started my treatment. Thanks to you. Thank you. That was so sweet. Thank you for letting us know that. <laughs> Aww. Yeah, that was very fun. Thank you. Thank you. I also appreciate that you talk about a range of subjects that impact patients, which is why I want to ask you this question. Up till now, I was very happy with the REI practice I decided to go to. My REI doctor and the entire office has been great. I went through three egg retrievals successfully, but now there's been changes happening to this office, and I am suddenly having a lot of difficulty scheduling my appointment with my REI doctor. They are now pretty aggressively trying to schedule me with a nurse practitioner for my follow-up office visits, which I am furious about. No disrespect to NPs, but I came to this practice for treatment because of the reputable and experienced REI specialist not to be treated by an MP with very limited training and experience." I'm not sure what NP should and should not be doing in the specialty, but please tell me what rights I have as a patient to see my doctor and refuse care from a nurse practitioner. I would appreciate your perspective as I'm very upset and don't know what to do. I feel like I'm being cut off from my doctor, booted off to an NP. Does this seriously happen in the REI world? Thank you. That's a great question. That is a
1: great question. So a lot of practices, need to use NPs or PAs because there are just not that many REIs in the world. There's only about somewhere between 30 and 40 REIs who graduate every year. And right now, if you look at the number of practices hiring, it is easily three times that. And so like much of the rest of the world right now, everyone is trying to hire and there are just not enough bodies to go around. And especially when you consider you know, the 15 years of training we go to get to this spot, it's hard to get those bodies in. So a lot of people use adjunct medical providers in order to help with that. Now, what your rights are and how that impacts your care is gonna be different from practice to practice. So as a patient, you always have the right to say, I only want to schedule with the physician, that is totally fine. But there's going to be a trade-off because the physician only has so many hours in a day. And most of us work pretty long days as it is. And so in order to give the care that we want to give, you, know, you can only schedule so many people. And so you're probably going to end up waiting longer because of that. And the demand for fertility services has not gone down, but the supply of people who have the extensive training to do that also has not appreciably increased. And so there are a lot more places that need to use adjunct folks in order to do that. Now, it depends on the oversight of that. And so there are a lot of nurse practitioners who've been working in the fertility world for a long time, and they're really used to it. There is a lot of pattern recognition there. And once you hit those patterns, you can kind of tell normal, not normal. And pretty much all of us are OCD about our patients. And so it's helpful if a nurse practitioner can talk to them and you know, allay some of the fears and go through the process because that doesn't have to be an REI. Where you want the is you want them supervising in the medication protocols, in doing the procedures and the input with the lab. So they're not going to necessarily be running the lab, but they're going to know what's going on in the lab. And so I think it just kind of depends on how your practice runs. Like they're just like all physicians are not created equal, all nurse practitioners are not created equal either. Some are really amazing and some just don't have the experience. And so I think it just depends on what you're doing. Like A lot of what we do is very repetitive. And so it makes it such that our staff can learn what we do. They don't necessarily know the physiology behind why we're ordering whatever we're ordering, but some of the people who've been doing it a long time are good at the pattern recognition and they can say hey, that doesn't look normal. And in a good practice, there's a lot of communication going back and forth. And the docs are are looking over every single lab, every single ultrasound that goes through so they can say, yeah, that doesn't look good. Let's change plans. So it, it really depends. I think everybody has the
0: right to choose who they want to see. And if they don't feel comfortable seeing a, a person, no matter who they are and what practice, then they need to, you know, see who they want to see. But I would agree with Carrie. It's just the supply right now of People that can see patients is just dwindling. And just like she said, we have supply chain issues and nursing shortages. And so it's just really difficult to get people in in the speed that they want to get in. You know, a lot of times in our field, if you have to wait, you know, a few weeks for your primary care doctor, for that, sometimes it's not as big of a deal. In our field, we see a lot of people that will do IVF and then immediately want to do another cycle. And, you know, that just takes manpower. And so, You know, we try and get patients in really quickly. We try and do our best to, you know, give them very good care. But a lot of times, just the speed at which patients want to be seen in our field, you know, because if you have a failed cycle, a lot of times you want to go right back into cycle. It just sometimes calls for using, you know, nurse practitioners who are experienced in the field.
2: Both of you have nurse practitioners. Nope. Carrie, you don't? No. Abby, you do? Yes. Okay. We don't have nurse practitioners either. I want to reiterate what Carrie and Abby have said in that. One of the beauties of the fact that we have been able to make infertility something that people talk about and they seek out care for and are proactive in getting that is that we are having more and more patients. We are in certain parts of the country having more Access in the meaning that people are getting more coverage um, for fertility care. So, people who previously chose not to seek out care now have coverage, and they're like, hey, maybe we can go and work on having a baby now that we have coverage. But, like they said, you know, we have historically, I mean, for decades, only had about 35 to 45 new REIs for the entire nation each year. And that's a teeny tiny number. I mean, we got 50 states, okay? <laughs> and um, granted, populations in those states are not uh, obviously equal, but there aren't enough of us. And and so if you want to see your doctor, I am sure your doctor is very happy to see you, but you might have to wait because there, you know, there's, there's only so many hours that we can see patients. And believe me, we do all kinds of like crazy things to try to get our patients in as quickly as we can. It's hard. I, I know in, in the situation where when my kids are having to go to the doctor, half the time they're wanting to schedule them with a nurse practitioner. And I mean, as a physician, I'm like, I'm pretty sure... I mean, yes, I do not practice pediatrics, but I'm like... I did go to medical school. I did go through pediatrics, you know, all those types of things. And so I'm not always excited when that happens. But when I know it's like, okay, this is something that should be within that scope of practice. But there are times when things are more serious and and I kind of make a judgment call of when do I bend and see the nurse practitioner? And when do I not bend? And I'm like, I have to see a physician for this visit because there are times. And so we don't want you to do something that's uncomfortable for you, but it is a trade off unfortunately all right our next one is ICSI really required for PGTA testing? I am experiencing secondary infertility and recurrent pregnancy loss after having a quick, healthy, and easy pregnancy with my two-year-old. So we are moving on to IVF after one natural pregnancy that resulted in a DNC at nine weeks, a chemical pregnancy from a Medicaid IUI cycle, and another DNC at nine weeks following another Medicaid IUI cycle. I have severe DOR at the age of 30. I have an AMH of 0.4, antral follicle count of six to seven, I knew of my DOR diagnosis before my first pregnancy at 27, but got pregnant a week before starting stems to freeze embryos. My husband is 11 years older, but had a good semen analysis back in 2019. However, now his parameters have decreased. His count is high over 100 million, motility normal, forward progression 2%, morphology 2%. So this has been determined to be a factor contributing to subfertility. I am pretty certain we could get pregnant again for medicated IUI, but I really don't want to waste more time and risk another miscarriage. So we're heading to IVF. Although I know PGTA testing for under 35 cohort generally doesn't result in higher live birth rates, given my previous losses, we, doctor plus us, are all in agreement that PGTA testing would be a good idea. I am nervous, however, about ICSI, as I have heard it can actually hurt success rates for women with low egg count, and the long-term effects of ICSI on offspring are still unclear, unknown. My doctor is telling me we have to do ICSI to do PGTA, but I've heard that it's not actually necessary to do ICSI for the newer tests they have, and I'm at one of the top fertility clinics nationwide, so I'm sure their tech is cutting edge. Thoughts?
0: I mean, you don't have to do that if you don't want to. I think in our center, Amy Jones, who is, does all the PGT testing or is involved with that for Ovation for the company that we work with, it you know, really feels like that we get better fertilization or she feels like that our center gets better fertilization by doing ICSI. And When you only have a limited number of eggs, you want to get the best fertilization you can. You know, there's no absolutes in our field. If you feel really uncomfortable about it, you don't have to do that. The biggest issue is if you only get two or three eggs and say we put it with the sperm in the Petri dish, not do ICSI, if we don't get great fertilization then, or if we don't get any fertilization at all, then the ball game's over before it's even started and so I think it really depends on your concerns and I would certainly talk to your doctor about it and just say you know I'm not real comfortable with this could I do something else could I do just insemination in the petri dish and I'm sure they would say yes but I think they feel like that they're doing the thing that would be the most helpful for you and you know in our center I would say the great majority and I probably with you with Susan and Carrie also the great majority of cycles that we do we do ICSI so I feel like ICSI is a good procedure and it works really well and I would have no qualms about doing the ICSI?
1: I mean, we do ICSI on pretty much everybody. And technically, yeah, you, you probably can't avoid it in doing PGTA. The reason we like doing it is because it nails down the timing and it also makes sure that every egg has the opportunity to be fertilized. And in DOR, that does help allay some of those concerns of if you only have three eggs, you want to make sure that they've all had a crack at being fertilized. And there's always going to be a 3 to 4% background risk of birth defects, no matter how you get pregnant, IVF naturally or or whatever. However, um, when you have a known male factor that adds another one to 2%, particularly of urinary abnormalities, and that's related to the underlying sperm that holds true whether or not you get pregnant through IVF with ICSI or naturally, that's a an issue inherent to the sperm, not necessarily inherent to the process of how you get pregnant. So that's going to be there anyway. And yes, everybody's watching to see if you do XYZ treatment, what happens to the children, and that takes a long time to figure out. About. ICSI has been standard for quite some time and very commonly used. So I probably wouldn't think a whole lot of it using it because they're going to choose the best sperm they can. The best swimmers, the most normal appearance. And that's going to help the hopefully right one get to where it needs to be.
2: Though if you are doing PGTM, so looking for specific genes, ICSI is absolutely necessary in that point. So just in case somebody's having to go down that route. Route because they're a carrier for some sort of genetic disease. In that situation, it's not a discussion point. It's a have to.
0: And I'd like to echo what Carrie said. I was trying to think back how long, I mean, for my entire career, I started in 1998, and we've been doing ICSI, and it wasn't quite as routine for the first couple of years, but I would say for more than 20 years, it's been pretty routine treatment. It's not experimental by any stretch of the imagination. And I would really think by now, if it was really going to have a significant negative impact on any aspect of what we do, we'd know it by now after 20 years.
2: All right, let's do one or two more. Okay, I am 34 and my husband's 36. We have been trying to conceive for 18 months. I was diagnosed with mild hypothyroidism in 2020 and take medication. But other than that, we have no known health issues. We did our first round of IVF in late 2021 that resulted in six fragile eggs, four did not survive the stripping prep for ICSI, one fertilized, zero embryos. We just did a second round of IVF. In early 2022, took DHEA, did a priming month with testosterone, and also added Omnitrope, along with adjusting with other medication dosages. My AFC is 11 for both cycles, but this round produced 14 eggs, all mature, 13 survived Dixie. And on day one, we had eight with pronuclei. We ended up with just two day six embryos, a 6BB and 6BC. They are now frozen and we are waiting for chromosome testing results. My question is, since our goal is to ideally have two more children, should I do another IVF round now rather than immediately moving forward with FET if one of our embryos is chromosomally normal? Since it seems I have an egg quality issue, I am concerned that the odds of successful rounds will only be worse if I am trying again at the age of 36 plus. I love listening to your podcast and would love to hear your thoughts and advice. Do it now. Create embryos now. Don't wait.
0: Do it. Do it. That's a great question and an easy answer. Go for it now. Don't wait till after you have a baby, for sure.
1: Your thinking is exactly correct. Time is not going to do you any favors. You already know that there's an egg issue. Run with what you got and do it now. If you know you want two babies, like give yourself the best chance possible.
2: All right. Good stuff. And... Our last one for today. Hi, first off, love your show. It has taught me so much. I'm 30 years old, diagnosed with skiddy PCOS. I've been CNRE since August 21. And I've tried three rounds of letrozole, 2.5 milligrams with just timed intercourse for two months and then 7.5 milligrams last month with IUI. They gave me a choice of one or two IUIs last month in which we chose one to start. It was not successful. Had one follicle 22 and a half and the other 18. We are trying again with seven and a half of letrozole and another IUI. UI cycle. My egg count is good. Usually 10 to 11 follicles on each side before starting letrozole, saline, HSG, endometrial biopsy all looked perfect. Sperm at last IUI, was at least 86% motility. Woo! And no other issues with my husband. Question. Doc is giving a choice. One or two IUIs this month. How would I decide?
1: We typically just do one IUI because there's not really a whole lot of data that shows two makes any difference and um, it increases your expense. And so we typically run with one. What do you guys do? We
0: do only one, two for the same reasons. We don't think... It will help if you do two and just increase your expenses and visits to the office.
2: We only do one. The only time I do two is if I'm doing a pure injectable cycle. Sometimes we do two. There's a study that actually came down at Texas Fertility Center a number of years ago that showed with injectable gonadotropins that two did improve pregnancy rates or If I have somebody who we've done IUIs and we have had less than 10 million sperm at the time of IUI, sometimes I'll do back-to-back IUIs. That is because I logistically am about 40 minutes away from where things can be frozen or things like that and people who are wanting to try anything. So we do occasionally do it in that situation. But if you got good sperm, one well-timed IUI is all you should need.
1: And if you can have sex, great. Count that as your second sperm exposure, but that second IUI doesn't help a whole lot unless you've got some extenuating circumstances like what Susan's dealing with. Lots of good questions today. All right. Well, any closing remarks by anybody? I think we talked about a lot. (laughs) Yeah. No, we love your questions. Keep in touch.
0: Well, so to our audience, thanks for listening. Tune in next week for more. Also be sure and subscribe and leave a review for us in iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. Um, you can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook. So hop on and leave us a like or a comment.
1: You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All the questions we answer anonymously on our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. We love episode
2: ideas and let us know what you're thinking and what you want to hear about. As always, this podcast is is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. We'll talk to you all soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.